Greetings and uh, warm welcome to Inner Sections, where our aspiration is to help us all explore the full possibilities in human potential, in you, in me, in us individually, as well as us collectively, and especially in us as humanity. And on this theme of our fullest potential, I can't think in some ways of a more central topic, a more critical topic of the hour, based on everything that is unfolding within and around us than this theme of like, how do we really connect it to that human fabric within our families and communities and our organizations and our teams and more broadly across the world. And on that topic, it is a great joy and privilege for me to have in our midst one of the preeminent researchers on empathy. I'm going to be introducing Jamil Zaki. Jamil is a professor at Stanford and empathy researcher. He's the director of the Stanford Social Neuroscience Lab. He teaches a very popular course on becoming kinder, which is designed to address this empathy crisis that you will see him talk about that we're facing in the world today to fight back against the increasing trend of polarization and disconnection. Uh, for the last about 15 years, he's been probing how empathy works, how it helps people, situations that can make empathy easier and also situations that make it harder. Through his research, he's led a kindness revolution in schools and workplaces and hospitals and beyond. He's put a book out with his ideas, thoughts and research, The War for Kindness. It's an inspiring call to action, exploring why it is that it feels harder than ever in today's world to connect and how can we overcome these modern barriers to empathy and what we should and must in fact try and do. He's been featured in leading media with his ideas. He's a very active and prolific writer with op-eds and articles on this theme. He's deeply invested in this cause, as you will see in your conversation with him as well. And, and here's just a beautiful quote from him to end this uh, introduction, which is, we are a link in an enormous chain of humanity. We each have a choice, and the sum of our choices will create the future. What a beautiful quote. You know, as a mathematician, I'm always finding the mathematics and everything. And what I see here is the notion of integration. You integrate across a lot of small things and you get the complete volume of karma in a sense that humanity has created. That's what I see in what you just shared there, Jamil. Thank you and welcome. Great to be here. Thanks. Uh, I look forward to this conversation. We're talking about this topic. I know we're very close to your heart and one that has drawn all of us to this moment as well. Let's just start, since you are a scientist, by having us define it. Loosely speaking, the word empathy is being used out there a lot today, both in society and in business. How would you, as a psychologist, define it? Thanks for starting there. And it's really important to start by defining our terms because over the course of my career, I've heard Hitendra, probably thousands of people give me hundreds of different definitions of empathy. Each person as confident as the next and all of them disagreeing with each other. So as researchers think of it, empathy is an umbrella term that describes at least three ways that we connect with each other's emotions. So for instance, let's say that as I logged onto this call, instead of being excited and enthusiastic as I am, I was weeping in anguish. Well, if you saw that, a bunch of things might happen in you. First, you might vicariously take on my feelings, becoming sad or upset yourself. That's what we would call emotional empathy or emotion contagion. Second, you might say, what is happening with Jamil? <laughs> what is he feeling and why? That type of detective work is what we call cognitive empathy. And then third, Hitendra, because you are a good friend, you'd probably care about what I was going through and wish for me to feel better, which we would call empathic concern or compassion. Now, these three pieces of empathy might just sound like different ways of describing the same thing. They actually split apart in really interesting ways. For instance, they're only a little bit correlated across the population. So if I know that you're someone who really takes on other people's feelings, that doesn't tell me that much 
about how good you'll be at understanding what someone else is going through. These different pieces of empathy are also supported by different systems in the brain. So a lot of my own work early in my career was focused on really dissecting empathy, trying to figure out its different parts, the same way that a mechanic might try to figure out the different parts of a car and how they work together to make the whole engine run. Very powerful. So the difference between just like thinking and understanding versus then actually feeling. And uh, I want to come back and unpack that a little bit more. But if I have your permission, I also want to work with you a little bit to maybe like push the boundaries for your discipline. Because sure. um, as I've been giving it thought in the context of my studies of like leadership, for instance, in addition to the very, very core components you mentioned, there are a couple of others that I'm noodling over. And I want to see what you think of those. The first is a very powerful learning I got from Steve Jobs, which is how when he pioneered his life story at Apple, the thing that he seemed to always believe was that people were designers at heart, that people had a much greater aesthetic hunger and sense and capacity to judge and actually pay for it than we did justice to them about. And so he took the cell phone industry, saw how essentially feature rich, but design poor cell phones were in the past. And then he really pushed his team and himself, right, to that place where we now have like magic in our hands, so to say. Now, of course, you're going to come and talk about some of the downside of that very soon. We, we want to hear, hear that as well. But this notion of just like elegant design, which is a movement that has swept the world. I remember there's a comment from one of the designers who said like, you know, what Steve Jobs said is like, people don't understand. These cell phone companies don't understand. People really crave good design. And um, I tell you, like, it really made me realize, like, my heavens, you know, I've never judged people to be like necessarily good arbiters of what is good design versus not in general. There are those <laughs> that are the aesthetes, you know, those people who really love great art and all of that, but the average population, right? But he saw something in them that even they were not necessarily seeing and acknowledging in themselves. And the question I have for us is, is potentially empathy also about that, which is not just that in this moment, the person is feeling, let's say, tired or angry or concerned, but also I see some hidden potential in them, maybe like a divine spark in them that maybe even they're not seeing in the moment. But if I can help them awaken to that, then perhaps they'll be discovering even more of what they're truly about. What do you think of that? Oh my goodness, absolutely. I would say that what you're describing is a steering process where we don't just meet people where they are, but we try to guide them to where we might imagine they would like to be. Another way of thinking about that is that in those cases, you're connecting not just with the person's current experience, but with their potential future. And you may be trying to co-create that future with them. I mean, I think that one really beautiful thing in what you just said is, I guess one maybe slightly more poetic way of describing empathy is that it has two sides to it. The first is a deep and visceral in our body acknowledgement that someone else's reality is just as true as our own, even if it's very different from ours, right? So they might see things in a different way than we do, but that doesn't mean that they're wrong or that we're right, that those two realities are both valid. The second, though, is an invitation or an action that we take to try to merge parts of our reality together. And in the case of Steve Jobs, in the case of design, in the case of beauty, really, a lot of art. And we can get into talking about the relationship between art and empathy, but I think a lot of art and science as well is basically a process of discovering something and then trying to get that into the heads of other people. I mean, if you think about even what we're doing right now, conversation is, it's just this miraculous biological feat where I am perturbing the air between us and somehow trying to get your brain into a state that is similar to the state that's in my brain right now. It's honestly miraculous if you think about what we're able to do 
Is that the connection that you're trying to draw here, Hitendra? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's so beautifully put it in such a more articulate and poetic way <laughs> than I did. There's <laughs> something that you've said in your book that I want to quote, just this one sentence, which I think feeds on the last uh, point that you just made. And you say, like, when one creature shares another's emotions, then seeing pain feels like being in pain and helping feels like being helped. Yeah. I found that very powerful. That's right. And, you know, that really comes from the Western philosophical tradition, the study of empathy. You know, it doesn't begin, but it, it really gains a lot of steam with a book called The Theory of Moral Sentiments by Adam Smith. Adam Smith, of course, more famous for the wealth of nations and being kind of the father of modern capitalism. But he wrote about what he called sympathy, which we would now think of as emotional empathy, that sort of vicarious taking on of what other people feel. And he called it the moral sentiment because he basically said, this is the foundation of our sense of right and wrong. And to build on your point, Hitendra, if when I see you in pain, it feels like being in pain, well, I have every motive to not cause you pain. And if when I see you happy, I feel happy, I have every motive to do whatever it takes to help make you happy or fulfilled or to help you find meaning. In other words, one way of thinking about this is we often talk about the golden rule, treat others as you would like to be treated. Empathy really makes clear how blurry the division is between you and me, and therefore how instinctual the golden rule can be. We often think of the golden rule as like the vegetables that you need to eat cycle, right? We'd rather be selfish, but we need to be kind to others just because that's some principle that we have. Well, empathy is not necessarily a principle. It's an experience that turns that into a very natural impulse, right? Because it acknowledges that in fact, you and I are merged in some way. And so treating you well is treating me well. And treating you poorly is treating myself poorly. Incredible. Really, really beautiful. I find such a beautiful connection emerging there with spiritual traditions around the world as well, that I've often talked about in a sense, um, your own higher self being your connection with every atom in the universe, every piece of life that throbs in any, any part of the universe. So there's uh, something really beautiful in the way that you are framing empathy for us. So thank you. Let's talk about what is going on in the world. You weighed in on this in some very heartfelt ways in your book. It's very clear, Jamil, that you're not merely a scholar in this discipline, a researcher in this discipline. You are living this discipline. It's deep in your DNA. And we want to come back and you know, reflect on your own personal journey a little later in this conversation. But for now, what is it, um, you know, if you had to like give us the state of the union as to are we becoming more empathetic? Are we becoming less empathetic? Is it a real issue or not today? You know, share with us your point of view. First of all, you're exactly right. I mean, I think one interesting part of my life over the last many years has been living as a scientist who studies something and then also just as a human being who's connected to it. And I don't think that I'm uniquely connected to empathy. I think we all are connected to it because we're all connected to each other. But I think to answer your question, there are a lot of data about the shift in empathy over time. And those data do not point to a very optimistic picture, I'm afraid to tell you. So the most common way that psychologists in my corner of science measure empathy is a simple questionnaire, a series of statements, and you're asked how well each one describes you from one to five. So for instance, I might ask you how well this statement describes you. I often have tender concern feelings for people less fortunate than myself. Or I try to look at everyone's side of a disagreement before I make a decision. So your response to those plus 26 other prompts would give you an empathy index from one to five. So that test was developed in the 1970s. And since then, I'd say millions of people have taken it. And researchers recently decided to look at the trends over time. And they found a steep decline in empathy 
over a 30-year span from 1979 to 2009. So to put this in perspective, the average American in 2009, according to their own self-report, was less empathic than three quarters of Americans just 30 years before. And if you think about the way that we've been talking about what empathy does for us, the way it connects us, the way that it makes us healthier and more fulfilled, and I suppose stronger people, then losing this is kind of like losing a vital resource, sort of like losing a vital natural resource, except instead of an environmental one, it's a psychological one. I've been thinking about what you shared in the book, and now you're sharing here with us as well. And um, I have a state of confusion a little bit about, are we becoming sort of more heart-based, more empathetic or less, right? And I think the survey, as you've shared, would suggest the trends uh, longitudinally that, um, well, we seem to be at least self-rating ourselves to be less, less so. Yeah. And um, I wonder if there might also, though, be a rising standard that we are all aspiring for that has also awoken us to the gap between that standard and where we are today. More than perhaps in some communities people were awoken to in the past. You know, I just wonder, and it's just a thought for you to maybe react to. I'd like to think that. And one thing that I often really respond negatively towards is when I describe those data and people kind of respond with some version of kids these days, though younger generations are all full of themselves and not focused on other people. Well, I interact with young adults. You know, I teach college students on a very regular basis. I interact with hundreds of them. And they, to me, are deeply compassionate. And as you say, responding to a real awakening to the need for human rights, for instance, in a broad way, the need for global responsibility in a broad way, the need to acknowledge privilege and understand how we can do for those who have less in a really powerful way. So I like to believe that what you are describing is right. That said, I'm afraid to tell you that the decline in empathy is not alone. So as empathy has declined, we've seen other psychological trends as well. Our trust in one another has plummeted, um, at least in the US over the last 50 years. Our cynicism, our belief that others are generally selfish has skyrocketed. Even interestingly, in the use of language, we've changed. So the use of the first person singular, I, me, mine, has increased in frequency in the English language over this time. And finally, our mental health appears to be deteriorating. People report being much lonelier, much more anxious, and much more depressed than they did, again, decades ago. And this is even pre-pan, I mean, it's obviously many of these trends have gotten worse during the pandemic, but I'm describing pre-pandemic. I'm sorry to be such a downer, Tendra, but I'm, af you know, I'm afraid that, that the decline in empathy is part of a cluster of, of really troubling signs if you're a psychologist. You say in your book, if you wanted to design a system to break empathy, you could scarcely do better than the society we've created. So what is it in the world that we've created that may be pulling down empathy, as you've just described? Let's start with the world that created empathy. Right. I mean, so whenever you look at a feature of our psychological lives, you can start by going all the way back 100, 200,000 years and think about what was the environment in which that characteristic developed. So if you think about empathy, human empathy in its modern form developed, we were living in tiny bands of hunter-gatherers, just a few families apiece. And so what that meant is that if you ran into somebody else, they were probably really familiar to you, maybe even related to you. You were interdependent. You counted on one another. You were visible to each other. We could see pain and pleasure on each other's face and hear it in each other's voice. And people were accountable to one another. I knew your history of kindness and cruelty and could pay it back. I mean, karma... <laughs> 
was real and palpable at that time. I think of those parts of social life as empathy's primordial soup, right? The sort of the environment in which it grew. And even now, empathy comes most naturally and most powerfully to us when life is that way. When I'm in the room with you, when I know you well, when we have a history of interaction, and when we have a future of interactions. More and more, though, those ingredients have receded from our day-to-day -day lives, right? We're more likely to live alone than ever in history. Our interactions with each other are more irregular and more transactional. And finally, we're technologically mediated in a way that we never have been. I mean, this conversation is terrific because it's got a lot of those prompts that allow us to connect with one another. I can see you, I can hear you. We've got a long space to chat and to open up. But many interactions that we have, I think you would agree, are much more thinned out and really not created for us to fully connect with each other as human beings. Thank you. One of humans' most natural tendencies at times is to like divide people into us and them. And it's also one of the fastest way to snuff out empathy. It's, it's something that I really um, also relate to a lot is how do we get our world beyond that place where there's a quick rush to judgment and a dividing into an us versus them and then a shutting out of any new ideas and possibilities. Adam Grant, of course, has uh, been reflecting on this as well, more from um, cognitive standpoint, right? But from an empathy standpoint, can you talk a little bit about sort of your research and interest in this? Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of the biggest topics in, in the world of empathy science is why is empathy so fragile? Why does it disappear in moments of conflict or when we define or divide the world into us and them as we really often do? It's almost as though there are these two ancient psychological forces. One, a very natural, really easy division of the world into categories, which is really useful in some cases, but really harmful in others. And the other is this natural ability we have to connect with one another. And they are sort of like a seesaw with each other, right? If I really decide that you are a them, that you're totally distinct from me, and especially if we're in conflict, well, that will, as you say, snuff out my empathy. And by contrast, when people make really important sort of personal one-on-one -on -one connections with somebody who's on the other side of a social boundary, suddenly we become aware that those social boundaries are artificial and that really the only thing in between us is air, right? And that we're just two human beings instead of two members of different armies at war with each other. And so you know, one of the things that's most powerful for, for overcoming those divisions is simply longer conversations, less judgmental conversations, simply being willing to pause and to hear each other's stories instead of just sniping at each other about our opinions. There's a lot of work that's coming out on this now in both psychology and political science. The big question is, how can we produce more conversations like that? Because right now our world isn't really built for them. I love the storytelling that you have in your book, Jamil, on topics like this, because you're not just uh, researching them from a very data-driven and experimentation standpoint. You're also giving us living examples of people who are walking these paths, either these paths of struggle and conflict and separatedness, or then transformation and growth and acts of, I would call them like heroic empathy. One of our other um, voices on intersections, Fred Dust, who's also beautifully invested in this whole science of like what it takes to make effective conversations happen. He made this very thoughtful quote last time he was here with us. He said, a creative conversation is about choosing to hold your existing beliefs more lightly.
I love that. You know, I think that's absolutely part of a conversation that works and part of one that can replace division with empathy. I think withholding judgment is critical. I think that as being less wedded to your own perspective, again, it gets, it gets back to this idea of acknowledging that somebody else's reality is real to them, right? That, that just because theirs is different than yours, that doesn't make them disingenuous or unintelligent or evil or anything like that. I often think about, do you remember that dress that was black and blue, but some some people for some wild reason thought it was white and gold? Do you remember this this uh, dress, Hitendra? No, I, I don't. Oh, it was it was called The Dress. And it was this famous image of a dress that was this designer fashion dress. And it, it created a war on the internet because some people experienced it as being black and blue. I see. And others believed fervently that it was white and gold, right? And, and this is not a political division. It's just a literally a division in what we are seeing. And I think that that's, that example always stuck out to me because people just couldn't imagine somebody seeing things the other way and vice versa, right? And I think that that's really critical to remember when you're entering a conversation where there's any disagreement is that this person, uh, unless you have any reason to believe that they're lying to you, is probably not. They're probably representing their own version of the world as honestly as they can. And I think that that's a very brave thing to do during disagreement. So I would say that certainly holding on to our opinions less strongly is part of it. And then I think really acknowledging and believing and having faith in the other person on the other side of that conversation as being a full human <laughs> is important. I know that sounds really obvious, but I think we often, instead of focusing on the other person, just live in our own reactions to what they're saying. And I think that's a very natural, but but a very toxic way to have conversations. So one thing that I often suggest to people is if you're having a disagreement, ask yourself, what am I learning? What is one thing that I now think of differently after this conversation than I did before? What is one thing that I didn't know that I learned? And if the answer to that is nothing, then maybe you haven't been listening as well as you think you have. That's powerful. Makes really good, really good sense. You know, you talk about some incredible transformations in your book. You know, there's a story about Tony who uh, left a far-right neo-Nazi kind of uh, past behind to ultimately become a whole different kind of person. And then you mentioned how he was once confessing, you know, his past to uh, to a Jewish man, uh, and his uh, his new Jewish friend responds with that's that's what you did, but not who you are. And I see you. I thought that was so powerful. That whole story. Oh yeah, you know, to me the one of the most moving examples of what in psychology we call contact theory. So contact theory is this idea that in essence prejudice and hatred are easier to do from a distance. If I don't really know you, I can just slap a label on you, whether it's a category that's related to your ideology or your ethnicity or whatever, and decide that you are fundamentally different from me. But once you get close up, you realize that People are just too complicated and idiosyncratic to be described through any one part of their identity. And you awaken to the richness and humanity on the other side, again, of those boundaries. I think the really beautiful thing about Tony's story is that he was confessing, as you say, his past as a real virulent anti-Semite to a Jewish person. And that man, Dov Barron, did not need to, had no responsibility to respond with empathy. We never owe empathy to people who would treat us with hatred. But Dov decided to take that step. He decided instead of reacting to what Tony was saying, 
you know, with his own fear or anger, which would have been totally natural and, and valid, he decided to respond with compassion. And I think that that's such a powerful decision that we make too seldom, right? We often don't turn the other cheek. We often meet anger with anger or hatred with hatred. And we don't realize that if we instead, again, it's not our job, but if we instead decide to take that first step to respond with the opposite, to respond to hatred with compassion, how powerful that can be, how revolutionary that could be for people who are caught in that cycle of hatred. Ah, that's so, that's so beautiful. So uplifting. Um, a dear friend of mine, Taylor, she, uh, she has uh, shared this uh, quote, having been inspired by your work, Jamil, we were having a discussion on empathy and uh, uh, she mentioned this Rumi quote, Rumi, you know, being this uh, 13th century Persian poet, right? And, and Sufi mystic. Uh, and so he says, out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I will mm. meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. That's gorgeous. Um, wow. I, I love that. Thank you for yeah, sharing. Yeah. Let's move the conversation to another theme, which is, um, you know, we have the gap, you know, today in, in the world. Uh, we, we have this yearning and angst of wanting to kind of like do something about it. Can we actually do something about it? You've, in your book, given some really compelling evidence about how empathy is actually a, like a muscle that can be intentionally strengthened and developed. I think there's just a broad today groundswell of, you know, this kind of, uh, I think, really empowering ideas coming out in science that we are not confined and limited to who we have been in the past, which is wonderful. I would propose that we maybe go through this part of the conversation relatively rapidly uh, with maybe like your favorite insight on this topic and then move it on more to where I get the real like goosebumps when I read about your work, Jamil, which is the contribution you're making to actually act upon this realization and put out there practices that people can take on both individually and collectively to really advance the empathy muscle. So I want to I like propose we move into that you know, fairly rapidly, but just you know, for a moment to make that transition, if you had to give your biggest, most pleasant sort of insight and understanding or surprise about how much can empathy be actually intentionally cultivated? Yeah. Oh gosh. I'm going to try to be brief here because two things come to mind for me. The first is work that came out of Leipzig, Germany uh, in about 2017. That was a collaboration between people in contemplative traditions, Buddhist traditions, and neuroscientists there. And so this was a huge project where they had a number of, a large number of people practice different forms of meditation, including loving kindness meditation or metta, which is sort of a compassion building practice every day. And then they, they examined their empathy, you know, in a battery of different tests, psychological tests, and then also scanned their brains before and after this practice. And they found that after engaging in these meditation practices every day for a few months, not only were people more effective at understanding what other people felt, at sharing other people's feelings, and they were more motivated to act kindly towards others, their brains also shifted. Parts of their brain that were associated with empathy, with empathizing with others, actually grew in volume. So, you know, I often talk about empathy as a muscle that we can build and exercise. That's the best description of how real that is. You know, it's metaphorical in certain ways, but truly when we change our minds, we do change our bodies and our brains as well. And, 
you know, the other thing that I'll say about that study is that when I first learned about loving kindness, I, I need to be sort of open and vulnerable with you, Hitendra. You know, coming from a really hard-boiled Western research tradition, I thought it sounded kind of squishy, to be honest, you know, and I was not convinced. And that collaboration really opened my eyes and made me very humbled that, in fact, the best way is to change ourselves, to develop ourselves, and in, including to build our empathy, might not come from research labs. They might already be here in ancient cognitive technologies that have been developed in spiritual traditions. And that the fact that I'm engaged with hypothesis testing and statistical validation doesn't mean that it's the only way of learning and knowing. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a bit of a just reflection for you to do at a meta level, to step back and just kind of reflect on ways of knowing and um, have been deeply sort of inspired by science and by spirituality. And I've, it's like these two different friends I've had in life. And I'm like, why don't you talk more with each other? Why don't you get to know each other? You're actually really, really beautiful people, right? And I think that's what's happening today. Science is starting to open itself up more to like some of these ancient pursuits that truth seekers have, uh, for the most part, been um, engaged in in more spiritual traditions, right? And on the other hand, also, I think like spirituality is moving beyond at times the confines of religion and institutional forms into a more kind of just more universal quest for like, what is this connection that I have with the universe? And people are asking those questions and pursuing their own paths in, in some beautiful ways, which I think hopefully can unify, you know, unify the world over time and bring science and spirituality also together. So, so that's, you know, that's been so rewarding to see. So rewarding to see. So let's talk then about um, how we build this muscle, you know, how we build this muscle. And again, I just want to start by saying kudos because uh, it is, um, and I think this is where, uh, in addition to spirituality, I think science can just, like, in, in addition to validating what perhaps spirituality has already, let's say, discovered for itself, like loving kindness meditations. I think there is just so much more um, richness that I'm finding from some of the kind of work that you and uh, your peers are doing in informing and guiding us to create some very simple, uh, deceptively simple interventions that uh, can have some real tangible impact in mo moving us one step, one step, one step closer, right, to an empathetic future. So can you talk about like one or two of the um, practices that um, from you and other colleagues that you have um, found most like eye-opening as to the untapped potential there is in any or all of us if we so choose to really work on building our personal empathy muscle? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so the first step, which is not always the first step that people think to take, is just realizing that we can do this. This is what, you know, we would consider a growth mindset, an understanding that we are malleable. And oftentimes people don't realize, they think, okay, there are parts of me that I can develop, but empathy is not one of them. We tend to have this trait-like view where we imagine that some people are just born empathic and some people are not. And you know, that belief is not just wrong, right? I mean, the science indicates that we can become more empathic, but it can also be toxic because it can discourage us from doing any work to change. I've heard a lot of people tell me, wow, Jamil, you've convinced me that empathy is this valuable um, quality to have. Too bad I'm, I'm just not good at it, so I won't try. And I say, well, hey, don't let yourself off the hook that easily. I think when we realize that we can change, and in fact, that the only thing we can't do is not change, right? That we're always changing. We realize it's our responsibility and our opportunity to kind of steer the ship, right? It's moving one way or another, but we can, but we can decide in which direction. And, and with that in mind, I think one of the uh, most powerful little practices to do in building our empathy 
is again, not to necessarily focus on big, you know, I think when people imagine becoming more empathic, they think that they need to turn into Mother Teresa, you know, by Thursday or something like that, or take some big giant action that redefines them. But, you know, I compare being empathic and growing our empathy to trying to become more physically fit, right? It's not about the big grandiose actions. It's about, about the little habits that we cultivate. So a couple of things that I encourage students in my Becoming Kinder class to do is to try to form tiny habits of otherishness, right? So not selfishness, but otherishness. And that can be really centering somebody else's perspective, really, you know, sort of trying to be curious about their humanity or trying to engage in small acts of kindness, but doing this in a very low intensity way, very frequently, potentially every day, taking just a few moments of their day to intentionally reset around another person's experience instead of their own. And that those little habits can be enormously powerful in creating long lasting steady change. I love that idea of, what do you call it, otherness? Otherishness, yeah. Otherishness, otherishness, yeah. So simple and yet so profound in the possibilities that it has. There is uh, one other key insight I got from your book, which is um, the importance of uh, recognizing that it's not just uh, something that you know is sparked from within. There are also conditions that are created from without, from around you, that can either support or limit, you know, our inclination towards empathy. Uh, and one of them was just the um, the kind of standards and expectations and practices we see around us as to like what's normal in some ways. Uh, can you speak to that a little bit? Oh, yeah. I mean, one of the most profound insights from social psychology is that our reality is co-constructed, that what I experience, my version of the world and yours, you know, might be independent in certain ways, but they uh, they absolutely affect each other pervasively and profoundly. So, you know, if you imagine that, if you realize and truly acknowledge that, hey, my capacity for empathy, my tendency to empathize isn't just my own, you know, solo sport, it's affected by, as you said, the social norms, my beliefs about what is typical or valued in the space that I'm in. And that can change, right? I mean, I might be at home thinking that empathy is hugely valued, and so I express it. And then at work, enter a really competitive organization where people are pitted against each other and decide, well, it's not safe to empathize here. So the first step is to acknowledge the effect, the profound effect that we have on each other, and that social norms, our beliefs about what's normal and typical have on us. And then I think there are two sides of this. The first is to be mindful of what we're taking in, in terms of our social environment, right? Because I think of the people that we spend time with, the information that we consume is very similar to the food that we eat or the air that we breathe. It changes us. And so when you make choices about which news station to tune into, which social media platform to engage with or who to follow on social media, or simply who you wanna be friends with, who you wanna work with, you're shifting your social environment, which will in turn shift you. Another side of that same reality, that same insight, is that you are somebody else's social environment. That everything you do, every act that you take, will change what they think is normal, typical, and valued. And that that will shape their tendency, for instance, to act empathically or not as well. And I think that's especially important for anybody who's in a position of leadership. Because the norms that they set will shape the people who they lead. Wow. And what flashes through my mind, and we should come back and talk more about the application of this in leadership, is also the central value this has in parenting, right? That um, 
some of those effects are very intangible and they're probably only witnessed 20, 30, 40 years later. But I tell you, I've been in my study of leaders, um, been more and more struck by, um, by two things. One is um, early life experiences uh, as a factor. And the other is um, how those people chose to react and respond and give meaning and storytell around those early life experiences. Yeah. And one of the really profound, um, just exemplary, I think, um, pieces of work there that I've seen is just your own introduction to your book. So we, we, we're going to come back to that in, in, in just a moment. We're going to come back to that. But, um, but yeah, you were saying something. Oh, no, I, I just wanted to co-sign what you're saying. I mean, I think that some of the most profound work on the development of empathy and really that shows how malleable it is comes from parenting. And in particular, from a group of people who tragically lacked parents. These are uh, orphans in Romania. Um, there's an entire generation of children who for political reasons were basically institutionally raised, which meant that they had access to enough food and they had shelter, but they just didn't have human connection early in their lives. And those children, you know, tragically developed very little empathy. I mean, their levels of empathy were sort of on par with that of someone who has psychopathy. But there was a happy ending for some of them, which is that they were adopted, some of them, by uh, sort of your standard nuclear families. It turns out that those children went from having psychopath-level empathy to having typical levels of empathy, and that tracked how warm and sort of, I, I guess, emotionally generous their parents were. So, I mean, you're absolutely right that parenting is the first and maybe the most profound norm-setting we ever do. And it's no surprise to probably many listeners here that that's also one of the defining things in who we become. And that absolutely carries when it comes to empathy and also continues to carry with our adult relationships as well. Yeah, no, thank you. I find it very profound to hear that there is actually this research to support, you know, this, this thing, which is more for me anecdotal in terms of some of these leadership uh, studies that I've done of their biographies. Um, but um, it also makes me wonder, you know, I, I know we have an international audience here, but just for a moment, zooming in on America, when uh, painfully so, we have one of these mass shootings and um, we all get very polarized about um, policies on guns, right? Between the Republicans and the Democrats. I actually find that they are much more unified than it seems in the press because they're very unified in the idea that it's all just about a debate on guns because that is the tool through which those people's lives were taken away was through a gun. But almost never has there been a very active conversation in the media about, hey, let's pause for a minute. Is there an impulse that comes before the gun? Mm -hmm. And where does that impulse arise from? And what are we doing in society to create generations of people that um, have so much compassion and empathy in them that that impulse will not even arise? Uh, whether it's a knife or a gun or a stone, that that's secondary to the you know anyway. So that uh, I think that's what you're speaking to here when uh, when you just talked about those uh, kids in Romania. Yeah, I mean, there's there's this famous phrase in clinical psychology that hurt people hurt people, right? That that often our creation of suffering in others is an expression of of the suffering that that we have experienced ourselves. Now, let me be very clear that that's not the same as uh, as removing responsibility. For harmful right. actions, right? I mean, right. you can absolutely still hold someone accountable for their actions while understanding that that they are acting from a human place, right. because humanity includes many dark places, right? Many yeah. dark experiences, and I think that when we dehumanize criminals and focus only on one side of the issue and don't think about what are we doing to people or what is happening to people. 
that is driving them so far uh, off of what we would think of as a healthy life path, you know, I, I don't think that we do anyone any favors. And, I, you know, I think it's one of the hardest things to do with our empathy is to extend it to people who don't seem to have it themselves. But that's one of the most powerful and important things that I think we we should try to do as a society. Yeah, very powerful, very beautiful. Um, there is a question, um, you know, from our audience about how do you um, how do you differentiate empathy and compassion? Yeah, so I, I was um, doing this a little bit during our definitional work at the beginning, but um, compassion is a motivational state, right? So if you think about empathy as having three different pieces, one is emotional, my co-experience of a feeling with you. The other is cognitive, my ability to understand what's happening with you. And the third is motivational, my desire for your well-being to improve. Compassion is that third motivational piece. So I, and most researchers, think of that as a component of the broader umbrella of empathy. There are people in the field who would say that, nope, compassion is totally different from empathy. That's a definitional battle that, that probably is not of great interest, but I think the important thing is that compassion is the motivational part of empathy. And it's the part that is most related, by the way, to kindness, to the actions that we do take to benefit other people. All right. So perfect. So uh, compassion is empathy in action. Yes. Um, yes. That's a yes, beautiful yes. way of putting perfect, it. Perfect. Perfect. Uh, so let's do that. Let's talk about empathy in action, not merely just for our own selves, but in our roles, as you mentioned, as as leaders, you know, as uh, as parents and beyond, uh, as uh, the the makers and shapers of society. So I, I, I love that um, focus in your book also to building systems of kindness right in the world. And especially as we think about, you know, the professional world, the, the business world, you know, organizations at large, uh, how do we scale empathy? Uh, and then the school system as well. You have this beautiful uh, story in your book about Jason, who uh, for a while was being considered by his uh, teacher to be a troubled kid who needed to be disciplined. Can you, can you, can you just in brief, maybe like share that story? Yeah, Jason Okonofa is a really um, inspirational person. So he grew up in Memphis, you know, uh, quite poor and, and black. And he had two older brothers who got in a lot of trouble. He himself was a straight A student for, for quite a while um, and just a really responsible uh, kid. But he was judged by his educators based on his brother's actions and based on the color of his skin, based on the clothes that he was wearing. And so he was repeatedly given suspensions and detentions for very little cause, and then eventually arrested for really not doing much of anything. And he was really at a crossroads where if he had been judged, as many young Black people are, uh, he would have been on a very tough life path. But instead, a judge saw his, his report card and saw that he was getting all A's, and he ended up on a different path. Um, and that path is that he's now a professor of psychology at UC Berkeley. He got his PhD with us at Stanford, and his work is basically on what he experienced, the way that educators sometimes tend to judge black versus white students. And because those educators are in power and setting norms, setting the structures, they basically don't give those kids a chance to express their full potential. Jason developed one of my favorite projects that I've seen in a very long time, which was an intervention for to reduce suspensions among poor and black children. But the intervention didn't focus on the kids. It focused on teachers. And in particular, focused on when 
teachers encountered a student who was struggling, maybe who had misbehaved in class or was doing poorly in the class, instead of judging that student, they, uh, Jason taught them to deliver discipline in a more empathic way, to ask more questions about how the student was doing, to frame their discipline, even if it was sending a kid to detention, as a way of trying to help them through a difficult moment. It turned out that that compassionate sort of punishment, it's still punishment, that compassionate discipline reduced suspension rates among especially black, brown, and poor children enormously, right? So I think, again, it gets to this idea, Hitendra, that, that empathy isn't just about an individual process. It's about the structures that we build. And if you seed empathy in the people who are in power, they can create more just and equitable structures that allow the people in that system to thrive. You know, I love this uh, couple of quotes from, from that story. You know, thank you for sharing that. Where, you know, in his work around creating empathic forms of discipline, right? He was, he was asking some of these teachers, like, what, what approach have they taken to put more empathy into their, into their moments of discipline, right? And uh, I just want to read a couple of these quotes that you shared in the book. Um, one of the teachers... Um, responded by by talking about how, you know, look, what I do is I greet every student at the door uh, with a smile every day, no matter what has occurred the day before. What a great way of implicitly telling the student, you're validated, I love you, you know, uh, and you know, what happened yesterday happened yesterday. And then another one says, I never hold grudges. I try to remember that students are all the sons or daughters of someone who loves them. They are the light of someone's life. That was very moving. It's so beautiful. And, uh, yeah. Oh, just really quickly, I think that, you know, part of what Jason does that's so incredible to me, and he's also, by the way, done this with parole officers and reduced recidivism or sort of re-imprisonment um, of the people who they are supervising. Part of it, though, Hitendra, is that I think a lot of us value empathy if we just slow down enough to think about it. We value other people. We love other people. That's what we're built to do. And I think sometimes just in the hustle and the hassle of our day-to-day -day lives, you think about these teachers, many of them are probably so stressed, dealing with so much. And Jason, just in asking them to pause and reflect on what was most meaningful to them and their connection to their students changed them. You know, it's not oftentimes that you have to force people to be empathic. You just have to remind them of who they truly want to be and who they truly are. Yeah. So I don't know if you have come across him, but uh, uh, Robert Pearl, who's uh, a surgeon and uh, former CEO of uh, Kaiser Permanente, he's written a book called Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. And he teaches actually at Stanford. So I, I wondered if your paths had crossed. No, I, I've actually not heard of him, but um, but I will definitely check that out. I it reminds me of the book Compassionomics, which is sort of, I guess, the opposite of that, a, a case for how more compassionate medicine would actually save everybody both time and money in addition to being more human and, and healthy. Yeah, so I think you'll really enjoy this. Uh, I'll, I'll send it over to you. In fact, uh, let me see if I can put that in the chat window for all of us as well. It's an op-ed that he wrote recently that um, Renu, my wife, just kind of like shared it you know, with me. And it's like so apropos for the conversation we were just having. And he's talking about this empathy crisis really in medicine. And he says something quite similar to um, what we were just talking about that Jason and you know the teachers were doing, where he says like, wouldn't it be nice if the physicians could just like imagine that the person they're serving is their own child, is their own son or daughter? What would that do to the way they would actually talk about you know health and engage on making choices about you know, and all of that? What do you think? What do you think would happen to our culture, Hitendra, if everybody? had a carried around a baby picture of themselves and you had to look at it before you interacted with them. 
Wow, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. But I love these little quick fixes, the little nudges, you know, that um, you've been working on. And um, before we close that out with a little bit more of your personal journey, let's, if, you, if you're open to it, share one or two insights you can. Um, for those of us who are in this maybe role or position or responsibility where there is a team or a community that we are managing, leading, you know, influencing in some way. And if you want to like activate more empathy across that system, like, you know, helping, like in, encouraging people to carry that, you know, ca carry that picture of them as a child or as a baby. Uh, what are some other such like, you know, simple things that we can do? to bring more empathy into our collective consciousness. Yeah, so I mean, I think that, especially for people who are leaders in any capacity, but let's focus on, let's say you're leading a work team. There's so many different simple things that, that we can do. You know, the first is really distributing attention, right? So oftentimes it's very easy for certain voices to dominate conversations in work, in the workplace and beyond. And that's typical, but it doesn't have to be. And I think that there's lots of examples of ways that leaders can, for instance, flatten a team meeting or slow it down to ensure that everybody has a voice or feels that they can voice their opinions safely and, and openly in that space. And, and that can create not just empathy, but also psychological safety, which is you know, critical to a successful work team. An another thing is how we reward people and what we encourage and what we highlight. And I think oftentimes in the workplace, um, we focus on individual contributions and that's fine. Um, but I think if we hyper-focus only on people's ability to excel at their own tasks, we kind of put them in little silos where they're not really that motivated to connect with or help one another. If instead, as some organizations do, we highlight and promote on and reward uh, also collaborative outputs, not just what people do on their own, but how they show up for each other, that again, resets the social norm and resets the incentive structure of a space, an organization to encourage people, again, not to invent a kind person who they're not, but to express the kind person, the empathic person who they really are in a workplace setting. Ah, very nice. These are such um, practical things that uh, we can take on. Beautiful. Uh, there are a couple of nice suggestions coming from uh, our friends in the audience as well. Gabe is talking about how, you know, pause, breathe, be silent and think and be present. You know, that moment of mindfulness, you know, that helps. Um, just, you know, bring less distraction, right, uh, to, to the moment. Um, and then... Um, and then Ram is talking about, you know, I used to have every team member have a smiling baby face, you know, you know, at his um, service call center. And it made a, made a big difference. Uh, probably it sounds like it doesn't even have to be like you as the baby, but just like some baby, <laughs> you know, just does it. Um, I love those. Yeah, those are yeah. great suggestions. Yeah, this is great. And then um, Jacqueline, you're asking a question about how you can get in touch with the, what you're saying is the research of focus on intervention strategies for teachers. I think you're referring to Jason. And Jamil, you mentioned that he's uh, now a professor at UC Berkeley, right? So I'm assuming that his contact information should be there. And Jacqueline, you can get more about that story, which I encourage you to read if you haven't fully uh, yet seen Jamil's book to see in Jamil's book and um, you know and then and then you get more about Jason and, and perhaps we'll give you a natural pathway to reaching out to him if there's a professional uh, meeting of minds there that you want to explore uh, so thank you for that so uh, Jamil let's come to the very very roots of your journey you know, you're passionate about empathy. You are a pioneer in this field. You are, you know, I can see deeply invested in it you know, just in every moment that you live and breathe beyond beyond just the scholarship, you know, which itself is profound and beautiful. 
And um, where does it come from? What has been for you your most uh, formative experience in life that just woke you up to the possibilities of empathy? Uh, well, I mean, you were talking about it earlier. It's it's family life, right? I mean, I think that family is the root of, of so many <laughs> parts of who we are. And for me, that's certainly true. So my mother uh, is from Peru uh, and my father is from Pakistan. They both immigrated to the U.S., uh, when they were in their 20s um, uh, and met in, of all places, Pullman, Washington, this little tiny town in, uh, in in Washington State where they were both going to graduate school. And you know, I think that my mother and father fell in love as many people who are foreign to a place do because of their sense of foreignness. I think that they both felt pretty uncomfortable in the U.S. and kind of found comfort in each other through that um, or at least a shared journey. But then, of course, they became more comfortable in the U.S. They've been here for 49 years now. I think they quickly realized how little they have in common, which Hitendra, as their only child, I can tell you is very little, like nothing. And so they uh, they had a long and pretty bitter divorce uh, that it really engulfed much of my childhood. And I, I'm their only child. And so a lot of my time from, you know, when I was basically six to when I was 12 was spent basically as the single bridge between these two realities that were so different from one another, different culturally, different emotionally, and different personally. And these two worlds that were also at war with one another. And uh, so a lot of my experience as a kid was basically trying really hard to connect with my mother, learning how to do that, and then going to my dad's house and realizing that the exact same thing utterly failed to connect with him. And it was a real struggle. I mean, it was a time of great pain, I think, for all three of us. But I think that, you know, at some point in that, I really learned that, hey, if I want to keep my relationship to my parents, which I deeply, desperately did, I needed to learn to to tune myself to their different frequencies. You know, I often talk about my parents' divorce as being an empathy gym for me, right? A place that forced me to work at care and understanding, forced me to understand that these two people had very different worlds, but they were both really wonderful, loving people who were in a lot of pain, but wanted to be there with me. Um, and I think that that's the most profound thing I ever learned. And, you know, I think in my life since then, one of my missions has been to create empathy gyms for other people, right? To give other people the opportunity to do that work, hopefully without the context of, uh, of as much pain and struggle as I was going through at the time, but, but still to provide that opportunity for others. Oh, that is so beautiful. That is so beautiful. I can't even imagine what it must have been like you know, for all three of you and uh, yet to make something so impactful come out of this in a way that uh, hasn't really only shaped your life and formed you, but also through you, you are shaping and forming, you know, so many of us as well, you know, beyond the multiplier impacts of actually a moment of adversity, you know, it's so incredible, so incredible. And actually, you know, it, suddenly I'm getting sparked again with the, the story of Buck. Have you heard of Buck at all? No. I think you'll, you'll enjoy uh, hearing about him. So, so he's, uh, uh, he, he's a, a rancher. He's a cowboy. Uh, and uh, there was a documentary made on him. That's how I came to know about him called Buck. And um, he goes around the country training ranchers to become like more effective at drawing out the best in their horses. Mm. Uh, and he is considered like essentially the horse whisperer. So there was the book uh, called The Horse Whisperer, which was actually, you know, written, uh, inspired by his story. And then uh, the movie, you know, The Horse Whisperer that was made by Robert Redford was actually based on that book. And he was hired at that time to help provide guidance on how to get like these horses to eat from the hands of the movie makers. Because he, he's just so good. He's just like a wizard with horses. 
use. And if you ask him, like, how did this capacity develop in you? How did this interest develop in you? You know, what he says is, look, traditionally, horses have been raised in America with the idea of, like, fear of punishment. That if you mm. don't do the right thing, you're going to uh, be punished and inflicted with some pain. And he says, like, it's it's the complete opposite of what we should do. We need to kind of train them through love and and compassion and empathy. And he says that the horse is so attuned to a human being and vice versa, that you should just become one with the horse. You know, how can you sit on a horse and say, look, the horse just kind of is like disobeying me. Would you ever be talking to somebody and your feet just like travel in a different direction from the rest <laughs> of you and all that? It wouldn't happen, right? So why would it happen with a horse if you're united with the horse? And so yeah. he brings about this like, you know, kindness revolution as, as you call it, right? To the way ranchers are dealing with the horses. And if you go to the roots of it, he actually says, um, you know, I grew up in very difficult circumstances. In his case, I think his mother passed away really early. He had an alcoholic father who, um, you know, it was a tough time for him. And ultimately, he had to be raised in foster care. Wow. And uh, and he says, through that, like, I've discovered, like, I don't want anybody in the world to go through this. Not even horses. <laughs> you know, so you have, you have this in your book. You have this um, idea about empathy being born from adversity yeah. uh, and the science of that, which I think is very powerful as well. And I see that uh, you have chosen to make something out of that moment in such a beautiful way. Yeah. And that story of Buck is really beautiful as well. Yeah. There's a whole world of research on what is known as altruism born of suffering. You know, this is the idea that actually moments of great trial and tribulation and pain, both at a personal level and at a collective level, can show us who we really are. And in many cases, that means showing us how much we want to be there for other people. And, you know, so there's all sorts of cases and stories and studies of people who have gone through trauma, whether it's war or assault or injury, uh, accidents, turning around and, and, and really refocusing their lives on service to others. Um, and that's part of what we would call post-traumatic growth. I think, Hitendra, this is a great note to sort of think about as we move into the future, because we're all going through probably the largest event of global adversity that I've ever experienced um, in, in most people's lifetimes who are alive right now in the COVID pandemic. And, you know, it continues and it will it will have reverberating effects on our lives for decades to come because of the pain that many of us have gone through, various forms of, of pain. And I think a big question for me is, what are we going to do with this difficult, painful experience? Are we going to, as it can easily, let it make us more divided and more sort of, I guess, crammed into ourselves or are we going to try to rediscover our common humanity through it um, to, to sort of realize what we owe each other and, and what we need from each other um, and recenter, I hope, human connection in whatever this new normal is that emerges after uh, after this, this pandemic. Oh, wow. That's such a great message to give us to start bringing us to closure. Thank you. Thank you, Jamil. And yeah, I should... Uh, let our audience and you also, you know, go back into into your beautiful lives. Um, this has been a, such a rewarding conversation. I really don't want to let you go. <laughs> you know, I, I want to keep this going. Uh, but uh, we look forward to having another episode of Intersections that we can have you back as you keep plowing this really beautiful path and maybe, you know, come back with some stories about some of these uh, contributions you and your students are making to, um, yeah, to make us uh, just like better humanity with uh, e even even with uh, the current conditions, uh, actually, in fact, being a source of inspiration and guidance and motivation to us to actually do our, do our life's best work. So let's come back and uh, have you back here, you know, at some point in the very near future, Jamil, it would be such a joy to do that. And I'm so grateful and thankful for what we've been able to make happen here together today. And um, I'm looking forward to much, uh, much collaboration with you as well as uh, opportunities just to see your work uh, flourish in the, in the world. So important. Thank you. Thank you for all you do. 
Oh, and and thank you, Hitendra. It's been an absolute pleasure. And yeah, I would I obviously look forward to many more conversations to come. 